This is Place and Time, a podcast from 436. I'm your host, Andy McAllister. 436 is an ongoing project that explores the context of global rhythms and music scenes, and more specifically the relationship between the places we live and what we create. This series of conversations with people who create, release, research and perform rhythm goes deep into that concept. For our first episode, we have Mark Giuliano, a drummer who is as comfortable in jazz clubs as he is playing stadiums. Known for his work with David Bowie and currently on tour with St Vincent, Mark's also well regarded for his solo projects under his own name and as part of his beat music project. I caught up with Mark earlier this year. We went through the creation process of his latest two albums, which followed two very different processes in two different cities. But before we went there, I started the conversation by asking Mark how he got started on the drum kit. Yeah, I was, I walked into my first drum lesson when I was 15 and uh, I had pretty uh, mild expectations. It was really just kind of another thing to do as a kid. Um, but I was so lucky to have an incredible first teacher, Joe Bergamini. And um, it was fairly quickly, maybe, you know, a few months in that I realized maybe it was something more than just um, another thing to keep me busy. You know, I, I felt uh, a connection uh, in large part to Joe, you know, his, his fantastic teacher and, and now dear friend. And um, yeah, the, I guess ever since then, I've just been trusting the path, you know, and still trying to manage my expectations. And um, yeah, here yeah. we are. And that path led you to, to music college in Jersey? Exactly. So that was like, just before high school, which over here is grades 9 through 12. So high school was uh, really a time when my hunger to, to play was really um, strong. So I was just trying to get myself involved in as many different musical situations as I could, uh, whether it was marching band or the jazz band at school or if the choir needed a drummer for a song, I... I would go help them, or the concert band, or all this stuff, forming rock bands outside of school. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, and then when it came time to go to university, I was torn. I wasn't sure, you know, there are no musicians in my family, or none of my, um, you know, the, the guys that I grew up with were musicians, so I just assumed maybe I would go to college for whatever, business or whatever just someone some kid from the suburbs does you know but um i applied to some music schools and and eventually got into william patterson in new jersey into their jazz program and um and that was huge because that was really kind of the first time stepping forward as oh maybe this could be a thing that i can actually do um and had a great experience in school and then yeah um, was always in and around New York City, which obviously is an incredible hub for creativity and exciting, yeah. you know, artistic possibilities. So, um, 
Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles now, but um, I was on the East Coast uh, up until just a few years ago. Right, so, and you, cause you went to college to do jazz, but initially when you started drums, jazz wasn't really on the on the radar. Right, right. I, I didn't know. Again, um, you know, I'm so grateful for my parents because they were always supportive, um, but they didn't themselves have... Um, much of a musical background. So a lot of my musical discoveries came on my own. And in my teenage years, you know, in the 90s, the way to discover music was MTV. Um, so you turn on MTV in 1993-4, and you see Nirvana, and you see Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam, and all these bands. So that was the first music that really um, captured my um, attention in regards to maybe what music to play. So when I first started playing, it was, it was all that. Um, and then it wasn't until my studies with Joe and in school a bit that he, um, exposed me to jazz and really, you know, such a wide variety of styles. Being in New York with the sort of, you know, in that jazz scene, that must've been quite an exciting scene to be a part of. Yeah, well, what what was your sort of relationship with the city at that at that point? Yeah, so I where I grew up, I was about a forty five minute drive west of Manhattan. So it was a bit of a commitment to get in there. Um, but when I got my driver's license, I would, you know, with my parents' trust, take the car and head in, and um, you know, I would go to the iconic venues, um, the Village Vanguard. I was I was studying with. Uh, my my final year in high school, I was studying with John Riley as well, and he played every Monday night at the Village Vanguard with the big band there. So I would go see that band a lot. Um, there was a club called Sweet Basil that I would go to. There was a club called Smalls. So I was really trying to see, um, you know, this is about 20 years ago now, so there are guys who are no longer with us that I... I did get to see around that time Paul Motion. I got to see, um, I remember seeing Freddie Hubbard at Birdland. Uh, of course, Elvin Jones at the Blue Note. Just wow. got to see him once. Um, and, uh, yeah, guys like Max Roach. You know, it was really, um, I feel like I just caught the tail end. You know, and there's, I never got to see Tony. Um, just missed him. Um, you know, uh, it, in an amazing way, I, in 1998, I was thinking to myself, I have to go see Roy Haynes at the Birdland, at, at, Bert, at Birdland. Who knows the next time I'll be able to see him and thank God he's still with us. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. W what is it? 24 years later. So he, he is, he's, I mean, we're so lucky to still have him and he still plays great. It's, it's really crazy is he 95 wow. 96 okay yeah. wild wild um but again getting to see him and uh yeah so it really was i didn't consider myself you know a part of the scene myself but of but a, a an avid listener and would get in there and then when i got into college it was still in new jersey but it was closer to the city and then it felt like almost every night we were finding somebody with a car to drive in and just go check out 
whatever was going on. So yeah, pretty incredible to be this close to um, such an electric um, city. Yeah, so almost that formed part of your uh, of your education as well as college, the proximity to New York City and getting to see all these what sound like amazing shows. Oh yeah, because also these clubs are really small. You know, I'm four feet four feet from Elvin Jones as he's playing, or I'm at the Village Vanguard where I could put my foot on, you know, Jeff Ballard's hi hat pedal if I if I really <laughs> wanted to create a get kicked out of there but no it's um that's the part of the excitement like a place like the village vanguard it's a magical place and so intimate so it's mm-hmm. it's really to to be able to be in the same room as your heroes is one thing but to really be that close is is something else that, that's yeah it sounds incredible it sounds like uh is 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 that still the case in new york can you still get that sort of education that you you did Yes, I think, um, you know, the ticket prices uh, continue to go up. So I think for college age people, it becomes a little more challenging. Um, But it certainly exists, you know, the Vanguard, Blue Note, Birdland's still there, Smalls is great. Um, Those institutions still exist, but also there's always, you know, the 55 bar, but there's also these other little smaller places that I'm not probably even aware of at this point that where everybody is um, playing and, and you have access to just incredible music. Yeah, there's, there's always that that one place, isn't there? It's like, mm-hmm. that's where you need to go. And it, it yep. cha- that changes so frequently as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. So how, how did you go from being, a, being a, in the audience to being on the stage? How did you integrate yourself into that scene? Um. That's a good question. Um, I think, let's see, just <clears throat> combination of luck, you know, and um, just ending up in the in the same room as as a lot of people that I admire and getting to know them, and um, you know, at the end of the day, the scene is really small. You know, so if you just hang out a little bit and, you know, just try to be cool and and just show your face, you know, people will notice you and people will just, hey, you were, you've been here. You know, I remember going to see Dave Binney at the 55 Bar almost every week when they would play with Dan Weiss on drums, incredible drummer. And Dan was my friend, but I was too shy to talk to anybody else. I remember Dave coming up to me. It's his gig. He's like, hey, man, I see you here every week. Like, what's up? You're, you're Dan's friend, right? Like, <laughs> it was almost the tables turned. Um, and that led to, a you know, a great uh, friendship. Um, so, yeah, I think, of course, you got to be head down, doing your homework, trying to develop your craft. But also, um, this is obviously early 2000s. This is pre-social media pre yeah it's like so in order to let people know that you exist you need to exist <laughs> yeah. uh, in person so it was just a lot of hanging out and again to i i never feel comfortable with the more heavy-handed hustle you know i'm not carrying cards and 
handing, hey, I'm Mark, I play drums, we should play. You know, it was more just an intuitive, again, just the mantra of just try to be, get in the same room as the people you admire and just be cool and be mellow and, and see maybe see what can happen naturally from there. So that's yeah. how a lot of situations happen. I assume a lot of it's due to being within those sort of square miles of a scene. As well. Yes. You, you, when you mentioned social media, I'm trying to think, would would that same sort of connection be able to be made in a purely digital way? And I think maybe the answer is is maybe no to that. I, I don't know what you think. Yeah, definitely not the same, but of course the digital space allows for um, connections to be made on the other side of the globe. You know, so it's a different kind of connection. Um, so in some ways you could say it's a, you know, less personal connection, but um, if you're restricted to a particular city, then obviously you're restricted to, um, although the connections might be more meaningful or deeper, mm -hmm. um, you're restricted to simply the other bodies that are in that you know, yeah. square footage. Um, so yes, I, I think, you know, we will always crave the deeper, more personal connections. And I think those do lead to deeper, more personal collaborations. But, um, you know, to be able to connect with people around the world is, is pretty cool too. And, you know, I think this conversation is an example of that. <laughs> straight onto your beat music project and, and have, Love a, have, have a chat about that Love it. because yeah. that seems to be like the very electronic version of you uh, mm. compared to the jazz quartet possibly maybe compared to the, the sort of gigs you were doing in New York it feels that's your other influences coming out you've got the jazz influence but you've got um, the, the influence of Aphex Twin and Square Pusher which is linked with your with your jazz side and created beat music would, would that be an apt description? Yeah I think um you know, if it, uh, to me, all my influences are, are of equal value. So I can understand on the surface um, that maybe the jazz quartet and beat music are different. Uh, but to be honest, to me, they're actually, if you, if you just erase some of the specificity of each, you know, um, or if you zoom out a little bit, to me, they're the same. They're um, a compositional outlet um, for me and um, again the the yes the end result ends up be sounding different but to me they're coming from an identical place so, so and that's um, that's what I'm trying to do more and more is is play and create from the same space each time and then as as it starts to figure out what it's going to be creatively yes it'll find a a path and and land in a particular place stylistically or sonically but um it always starts from the same place and that place is um this stew of all my influences so um 
you know, that is, it's, it's, I, I, I almost think about it as like, um, you know, there's like this pub in my brain where everyone's hanging out and, and getting along, you know, and <laughs> Bob Marley is talking to Elvin Jones and then, you know, um, uh, Kurt Cobain is hanging out with Square Pusher and all these guys and and it's like a party that I wish I was at, you know. And um and they are all exchanging ideas and all the ideas are of equal value, you know, trying to be non-discriminatory as to like, oh, if it's the jazz quartet, I need to lean on my John Coltrane influence and so maybe the Square Pusher influence doesn't have a place. I used to do that when I was younger. I used to think if I'm playing jazz, I can only, you know, reach into my Max Roach, um, you know, Roy Haynes inspiration. And if I'm playing electronic music, I can only, you know, reach for the little bit of Aphex Twin I, I might have figured out on the kit, you know, but more and more, I really just hope to just go to that same one place where everything lives. And, um, you know, just try to follow my intuition and, and see what so, works. I think maybe we'll discuss that in a bit, but with the latest album, there's more of that evident as well. Mm. But um, What process be of recording like a beat music album? I, I dug out the vinyl of the beat music, beat music, beat music album earlier and, and looked at the liner notes and there's a lot of people who you normally play with in other settings as well on there. So I, I thought maybe just to go through the process of how that album you know, was, was put together and then we can have a look at the, the latest two albums as well. Yeah, so for the most recent beat music record, it was kind of a, in some ways a culmination of almost a 10-year path of exploring that way of playing as a collective Um. um yeah, I I had an itch to start, um, you know, start a as a as a quote leader um, playing in a more slightly allowing the electronic influence to appear, and um, but it was more the songs were more frameworks and more skeletal and leaning a lot on improvisation and we would have these regular nights in New York and play all the time and it was kind of this rotating cast of guys right. so it felt more familial um, than like one particular lineup and over the all that playing all those gigs I really learned more and more about maybe what it would be that I want to say compositionally and just what works and you know, yeah. So that record um, ended up being pretty much the most compositional record I've made where um, almost everything was through composed with very few exceptions. Um, and I wanted to include everyone in the family on the record. So it was the first record I've made where it was really individual by individual. So I had pretty detailed demos um, that, again, were pretty thorough compositionally. And um, the, the process of making the record was essentially replacing, over the course of a couple months, replacing everything on those demos with performances from these guys. So 
I think because we, I have long-term relationships with everyone that ended up on the record, I trusted that even if we weren't playing together, there would still hopefully be that feeling of continuity and, and you know, yeah, just a, a hooked upness. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I kind of went around to everybody and lots of home studios and, um, you know, collected these performances. And of course, um, although the parts were fairly detailed, I left the door wide open for their own ideas and embellishments and sonic treatments and all that. So what you hear is um, a result of, of that process. So, so, yeah, for the previous one was a very improvised album, I think. Exactly. Uh, Purely uh, improvised. Yeah. yeah, that's And it was in Los Angeles. Um, it sounds, might sound like a very obvious question. Like, what, what led to that album being for Los Angeles improvisations rather than the New York improvisations? Yeah, a very, a very, that's a very easy answer. Uh, Tim LaFave, who is uh, an incredible bass player and a frequent collaborator, he was living in New York for a long time, moved to L.A. When he moved to L.A., we still wanted to play in, in that kind of style, so we thought, let's um, just create a Los Angeles version. And my friend Troy Ziegler, dear friend who I've known forever, uh, um, I wanted to include him and he brought a really exciting element of electronic, you know, he's he's sampling us in real time and affecting our performances and adding samples and all this stuff. And Tim recommended Jeff Babco, an incredible keyboard player. Um, so that, when it's the four of us, it's the, the Los Angeles version. So we went into a studio for a day and, and played for hours, and then I just tried to find the the good bits wow so that's literally all just one day's just jamming and improvising and mm -hmm. yeah, and i will say um i passed on those good bits to steve wall another dear friend and collaborator we went to high school together to mi mix it and when he mixes he's also kind of producing and he really gets his hands dirty you know <laughs> so it's uh he he also has a, a strong voice on the record because yeah, it's like 30 tracks in that album, so mm -hmm. that, that was a good day of improvising. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> forward to to just now another album that's been recorded in los angeles in somewhat different times because it was during not so much lockdown but the sort of weird period following lockdown that you yes. you first started the, the album which at the time of this recording is is out mm -hmm. um and that's just a, a 
purely solo record of more experimental. Yeah. So maybe um, you could just talk through how that came about. Sure. It started um, in a very innocent way in the sense that there was no intention of making a record. There was no intention of making anything that anyone would ever hear, um, which I think is a, a really beautiful way to start something. Uh, sometimes if you create these parameters from the beginning, uh, it puts this uh, unintended pressure on the artistic process, you know, mm. um, which at, can be healthy too, but in this case it was very liberating to very liberating to not have any intention other than make something. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> um, so uh, this record, Music for Doing, is born out of uh, a collaboration with Pete Min, who owns and operates a studio here in Los Angeles, about 10 minutes away, called Lucy's Meat Market. And it's an incredible studio. Um I was doing a different session at, at Pete's place and we met and just very casually he said, hey, if you ever just want to come over and mess around, make something, let's do it. Um, which uh, I was really excited about that opportunity. That isn't something that, in, reg in to talk about places, I, I hadn't had many situations like that in New York. New York felt a little more formal when it came to recording at least from my my own perspective or from my own experiences but with pete here's this guy who super creative guy super cool guy who runs this beautiful studio he's like hey just come by and it's like oh okay and so do we need to like no talk of business no talk of are you gonna charge me what are we wait no let's just create and that was super liberating um the studio is littered with analog synthesizers and beautiful gear uh, a great you know a couple different kits beautiful piano all this stuff and everything's ready to go so we just went over the i, I think the first time was december 2020 and um walked in with nothing in mind and just started improvising and sometimes He'd say, all right, let's just start with this, you know, and it would be um, some cool synth and we'd make some noise and move that around. So I, technically, I'm the only one playing on the record. And, I, I, you know, um, but in my mind, it's totally a, a duo, you right. know, because um, he was, um, you know, setting up musical environments for me to then improvise and then we we go from there and um yeah it was kind of like we would get together maybe once a month and by the by the end of each day you leave there with something you know and they were like you said it was, it's quite experimental almost more sonic collages than songs you know mm. and um no rules, anything goes, um, let's try everything. Everything's a good idea until it isn't, you know. <laughs> um, but um, we worked really quickly, and I think uh, that helped us not second-guess ourselves as we were going. And it just felt like um, a very 
open and supportive creative space where you could just try something and not feel bad if it fails or, or things like that, not feel self-conscious, which, um, you know, is something that can happen often in a creative process. So, um, yeah, major, uh, thanks and appreciation to Pete and, um, first time I ever made a record like that. And it wasn't until we had maybe five or six of these things that we liked that we said, Hey, maybe this could be a record. And he just recently started a record label, Colorfield, And, um, this is the third record on that label. So it was totally in-house and, um, yeah, it was nice to just like, we're done. Okay. Set it free. Yeah. I suppose the, the just the, the whole thing of not being in the clock and not not having you know that pressure of like oh, I've got to record this style of album or this yes. you know this this number of minutes or anything like that it was just totally totally free form and you you were you were given a free reign. It sort of reminds me a bit of the the Brian you know oblique strategies. It almost feels like you were you were set up some little um, potential paths to go around with the equipment and the setting, and then you chose which path to follow and. Maybe that became the idea for the song. Yeah, we were really just following our intuition, and it forces you to be super present because if there isn't a plan, you can't. There's nothing to forecast, you know. So you're just really following each intuitive choice, and and then maybe at the end of the day, you pick your head up and see what you have, and hopefully, it's something that you might want to share <laughs> yeah I, what i like about it is quite a lot of tracks of they're quite edity as well there's quite some some very one might say abrupt but i think uh creatively abrupt changes of of, of mood straight away which it's a journey in in that sort of sense you like as a listener you you can't get into a zone for too long without being taken out of it so maybe a similar sort of vibe to the process of of creating it yeah and and i think uh the most important thing is just as you're saying, the the intention of that. I think it was it was like um, uh, because Pete's studio is so hi-fi, and you know the sounds he gets are so um, beautiful and clear. And you know, I I think like um, in that environment. And this this may sound a little silly, but in that environment, there can be a risk of making something too pretty, too yep. professional. And um, I think those kinds of edits and that kind of heavy-handed treatment and production, almost ignorant, like, okay, now it just goes here. Like in a in a Pro Tools setting, in a Pro Tools session, mm. you know, the entire you're not doing these super finesseful edits with, you know, at times it would be, now we're just going to take this entire thing and plant it here and see, see what happens, you know, and, and that can definitely, that almost, I want to be careful with my words, but like, cause we weren't trying to make it sound bad by any means, but almost an intentional amateurism introduced into a very professional environment i think can lead to some exciting uh art was there one piece of gear in that studio that you're like fell in love with what was the, the one thing that you'd be like well i didn't expect to maybe use it so much but then it sort of came to its own 
Um, you know, this may be a... It, this answer even surprises me, actually, because, again, it was the A-list since. It's, it's you know, a, an original Prophet 5. It's the old Moog Model D. It's the... Wow. the um, um, I, gee, I can't even remember all the, you know, and even new, weird new drum machines and this and that. But actually, my answer to that would be the grand piano. Okay. It's, um, usually when I sit down at a piano, I am blocked by the kind of music school head of, oh, I'm, I'm not good and I can't play and I don't you know my my ear is not super sharp my piano playing is su certainly my my theory is functional but not super sharp and I feel like those insecurities often get in the way and when I sit down at a piano I'm constantly telling myself that I can maybe look around and find some chords but I can't play you know mm. and now here we are rolling okay go and i'm in it and then because of the creative space we built i just felt safe to just try some stuff and there were moments where i was like whoa okay that just happened and i really like those voicings and i'm not even exactly sure maybe what they are but who cares you know it yeah. it resonates it works for this moment so i actually had some breakthroughs in that way at the piano and the piano itself it's this beautiful Steinway where you can I mean you play one note and you're like I sound amazing <laughs> so it's just an inspiring um, instrument to begin with but again the the creative space that we built I think allowed me to access some new ideas and new confidence um, at the piano for your latest album um, as yet untitled or it must have a title there. it is called The Sound of Listening right. yeah. and that was recorded it's, well, it's a to totally different recording process yes uh, to, but the, the music was composed in Los Angeles yes so yeah at home um, this this yeah, I'm sure there are many people have this story that the, the record was meant to be made um you know in what would it be 2021 we had a week scheduled at the village vanguard with my quartet and then the plan was to go and um 
go into the studio following that week and record. Um, so that got pushed into February of this year, 2022. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so it gave me a little extra time to work out the repertoire and work on some music and yeah, this is a very different process, a much more traditional process in the sense that here's the band, here are the songs, set up in a room, hit record, play the song, and then you look around and you say, was that it or not? Mm -hmm. No? Okay, let's do it again. Oh, that was it. Okay, what do you want to do next? You know, so it's a bit oversimplified, but um, but in some ways not. That's just the... Yeah, yeah. You know, the intention is to really document the way we play together, and there's lots of improvising. Of course, that can only really happen in real time. So um, I feel uh, really grateful to get to be able to have these different ways of documenting the music and because and, um, they're all equally inspiring and satisfying. Definitely, yeah. Uh, so, so with this, when you were... you composed music uh, or or structures maybe more more aptly yeah they're they're you know um to varying degrees in in a jazz sense they're you know it's um melody and harmony you know but with yeah i mean compositions but with definitely carved out moments for improvising yeah and then you had some rehearsals in in new york and then a week at the at the vanguard Exactly. So by the time we hit the studio, we knew the new material quite well. And um, the only challenge, the biggest challenge was at the Vanguard, we weren't, you know, worrying about lengths or, you know, um, certain songs, you know, could get up to 20 minutes on a certain night, which was super gratifying, but um, quite far from my um, compositional intention. So how do we get that one? down to four minutes that that you know to to get it on the record so that was the only um that was one of the challenges of going to the studio straight after that week but of course it was um such a benefit to have all that time to spend with the new songs before recording them yeah uh, so, you, so you guys would be sort of super loose because you've been playing together so much for you know, for, yes. that, for that time so that must have been yeah, totally different experience uh, in in terms of that was that was in the bunker studio as well, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah, where where on the east coast, any pretty much everything I've recorded over the years has been there. Mm -hmm. Am I right? I think you've even got a drum kit there. I do. I have a kit that lives there. Yeah, there there. It's a nice. Um, I mean, those guys are great friends and. Um, I, when I was moving, I wanted to leave a kit in New York, and I think we both make out on the deal. They get a nice Gretsch Bop kit that, and with the intention that it's it's the studio kit. Anyone can play it. I want I want it to be played. I don't want it to just sit around in cases. So they have a nice Gretsch Bop kit that lives there, and then I get to go pick it up whenever I come to town, and Fantastic. you know bring it around. So yeah, it's a nice. A win-win. Fantastic, and and the some of the bits um, you've played me from the from the new album. There's some electronic sort of almost segue sections. Some of it comes more. This is going back to where we were talking about before. Maybe more from the beat music space, but is now bringing it together more as a more as a whole. 
Yeah, I think I'm I'm feeling more and more comfortable about presenting these different ideas or sounds in the same, um, you know, in the same statement. Mm -hmm. I, I in the past I've been pretty mindful of um, keeping them apart from each other just so that each statement is clear like the jazz quartet is this it's saxophone piano bass drums everything is going to be portrayed in that sound beat music is something else you know but now more and more i'm i'm feeling comfortable with blurring the lines and just allowing it to be all one expression and yeah i think this record um is a step into that direction into the gray area yeah like an eclectic playlist like so yeah a little more but but again from me because it's you know what is the through line it's like all just it's me it's us it's to me it's all coming from the same place do you think the experience of music for for doing that recording and just being a bit looser and freer with the process maybe that that informed that decision a little bit for this new album um I'm not sure because it everything there started from scratch. So I think it's easier to inhabit that looser, more open perspective when it's all really being created in the moment. Whereas this record was more about documenting performances of, you know, pre predetermined material so but i mean just the spirit of having an open mind and being in the studio with that perspective is definitely was cultivated and and enjoyed in the music for doing process and um what's the next project or have you decided what the next project i know you have some some touring to do you play with um, st vincent and other it, bands so. yeah exactly so um I think for me the 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 sound of listening will come out in October of this year and we will um come to Europe for a couple weeks and um play some shows around that release and then into next year there'll be much more touring with the quartet um I'm already thinking about more you know i i need to be thinking about the next thing you know i feel uh sometimes i feel like uh a little impatient with just i can't just wait for this record to come out to be creative again you know so yeah, yeah. <laughs> i am um, always writing new music and um not exactly sure what it'll be for but um i'm already collecting uh, new repertoire and um yeah, I have a, a distant thought as a is a solo, a s truly solo record and a solo show, which um, is probably a few years away before I can figure out exactly what I want that to be. But I think that would really um, be a representation of these different worlds, you know. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll see. It's. Um, some days it feels vivid and, and clear as to what the next steps are, and some days quite murky. So, yeah, just going with the flow.
there's something I was, I was listening to to a lot of your stuff like you play odd time signatures in a very accessible way mm. like um, when I've listened to your stuff with Avishai Cohen and also some stuff on the Beat Music albums like 3-4 is not a it's not a, a time signature you normally get in electronic music but when you play that it sounds just totally natural and uh, with some of the more complex sort of stuff it, it's only intimidating if you try to count it if you don't try and count it, it probably doesn't doesn't even feel like it's an odd time signature. So I, I thought maybe just you'll talk about your relationship with odd time signatures and yeah, just the the feeling that you get from those and how you make them feel so comfortable. Well, um, this is an interesting topic. I, to me, it's all about the composition um, because some some compositions are built in a way that. Um, might themselves not be so comfortable <laughs> so it would be that that much more of a challenge to to make it comfortable but i feel lucky playing with a guy like avishai for so long he's not ever presenting something just for the sake of an odd meter it's it's a very intuitive sound and there's a lot of folk folkloric music that he grew up around that just so happens to include what we consider to be odd meters you know, um, I think the only reason, I guess, you know, one definition could be if the the number in the meter is an odd number, I guess we can call it an odd meter, you know, five, seven. But to me, odd meter, even the 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 label implies that it's difficult or strange or something less familiar. And um, quite often that's, it's just the, the, less familiar aspect that makes it um, less comfortable. It's just, for whatever reason, the majority of the music we've heard from where, when we were born and where we were born is probably 4-4. It could have been 3-4. It could have been 5-4. It's just whatever you are exposed to the most is what is familiar, and then therefore things that are not that have this less familiar and potentially quote odd feeling um but again playing with avishai it's he's presenting these ideas in a very intuitive and familiar way so i just tried to absorb myself into his feeling and and the last thing i want to do is play in a way that would draw any attention to the numbers or the 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 mathematical details of it, you know, just trying to capture that feeling. Brilliant. And you, you do so very successfully. So like this is going down the, the drum geekery route of which we'll come back out of in a second, but is that a case of counting the, the numbers or feeling the phrasing? Yeah, I think I, I tried to resist the numbers as long as I could. Sometimes something would be so unfamiliar that my only way in would be the numbers and and counting but i always just tried to you know listen and um take it in sing the melody sing the bass line really again try to just latch on to the feeling and the phrase lengths and things like that and and really resist the counting because um i do think that like your first impression with a piece is to a certain degree always going to be 
is that will always define your relationship to it. So if you immediately scratch the itch of needing to know what it is theoretically, and you're like, okay, I think it's a bar of 11 and then a bar of this, which is okay. I, I just think that as a first impression, you will always play from that perspective. You know, whereas if you just try to absorb the feeling, memorize the melody, um, you know, from that more intuitive place, that'll be the the place from which you're playing. And resultantly a much sort of freer performance as well. So I hope so. I hope so, yeah. To sort of cities and locations, you know, you've done a lot of traveling, and, and recently you've done a lot, a lot of traveling with St. Vincent. Uh, other than the two cities we've talked about today, is there a place that, that you were drawn to as a city which could be you know, the location of next beat music project? Mm. Uh, in the States or around the world? Anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, there are, I mean, it's. Uh, there's a long list of cities I love, of course. Um, some that stand out. Um, I really fell in love with Madrid. Um, I've I've been lucky to go there a lot over the years, and um, in my twenties, I entered a really obsessive phase with flamenco music, and um, I have some good friends in Madrid, and and I feel very comfortable there um tokyo is at the top of the list um i just love love the energy in tokyo um i haven't i i will say i haven't explored the music as much as i would like to um but just as a city the 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 spirit and the people i i love um let's see London, I always feel a connection to. I have a really strong group of friends there, and and it's been such a consistent touring spot over the years that yeah. it's it's been easy to cultivate those relationships. And um, what else comes to mind? So many places, you know. I if I had to think about the states, um. I have a soft spot for Seattle, you know, okay, uh, yeah. getting back to the early part of the conversation. It's where so much of the the music that I really fell in love with as a teenager and started, but what kind of led me to the drums, it was born there. Um, so I feel I have a very nostalgic feeling when, I, when I'm there, and it's just a um, beautiful part of the country, too. Yeah. Pacific Northwest, very green. Um yeah, so that that's a short list for yeah. you. And Three I, I different imagine, continents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine if you were to make an album each one of these cities, each one of those albums would be completely different and feel. You know, those very aspects that you're sort of describing would be part of the influence of the music that you'd create there. 
Absolutely. And would most likely, I assume, in some way would feature, you know, people that live in those places. So obviously, they those musicians would be bringing their their energy to it, which would be reflective of the city as well. So, and one, one final question. Sure. Um, this is down a, a coffee niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was one coffee shop in the world that you would recommend mm. to go and have a morning morning cup of coffee, where would that be? Oh, this is tough. Well, I mean, a couple of the cities we just mentioned are really good coffee cities. Mm. Um Oh, just one, huh? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a really selfish answer. I would say come to my house and I will make you a really good cup of coffee. Um, I take pride in the coffee that I make, and um, yeah, I I just make you know a, a little pour over every morning and black coffee, nothing nothing crazy, but. Um, it's uh, it's my routine, and it's too difficult to to choose one cafe. So you can come on over, and I'll make you a coffee. <laughs> Fantastic! That's brilliant. On that note, I'll say thank you very much for for spending the time chatting today. It's uh, yeah, been great great to get your insights, and looking forward to hearing the new album on its on its release. Thank you so much. Yeah, always great to chat. Appreciate it. Next time on Place and Time. In terms of business, people were fairly friendly, but when it came to sound systems, they could be very, very competitive because you needed the edge to be the winner. We hear from Kwaku, a UK reggae historian, and the story of how Brent, a borough of North London, became one of the most significant places in the world for reggae music. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe in your podcast app. And if you feel inclined, please do leave a review. In the meantime, Thanks for listening.